Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Jonathan on Money. This is episode number 45. And before I jump into this week's awesome episode, I just want to remind listeners once again that I now post daily financial planning videos on YouTube and Instagram. They're only about two to three minutes long, and they usually cover something timely and relevant to your financial life. If you haven't checked them out already, be sure to do so by subscribing to my YouTube channel, which is called Jonathan on Money. I'll also include links to where you can find my daily videos in the show notes to this week's podcast. Okay, so my talking points this week will discuss the always important topic of how the most important financial decision most people make is who they decide to marry. As a semi-retired matchmaker myself, there's a lot that I can say on this topic, but I kept my remarks relatively succinct. We'll also discuss an important quote from comedian Chris Rock about wealth. And as always, we'll spend the last half of the episode answering listener questions. With that, let's jump into this week's talking points. So when asked what is the most important financial decision you've made, most people typically include items related to living within their means, saving for the future, investing, estate planning, insurance, and other personal finance topics. Well, these are all essential components of a sound financial strategy, I contend that the single most important financial decision most people will make is who they decide to marry. This may seem surprising to listeners, but it's the truth. Who you choose as your beshared is more important to your wealth than your asset allocation, retirement accounts, or pursuing a high-paying career. You don't need to take my word for it. Legendary investor Warren Buffett seems to find have the same, same mind as me. At the 2009 Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, he told the audience, marry the right person. I'm serious about that. It will make more difference in your life. It will change your aspirations and all kinds of things. Based on my observations of over, over nearly two decades I've spent working with families, I'll outline a few ways in which one's choice of spouse can be the biggest force in creating wealth or eroding it over time. As you listen to these points, be introspective on what you can do to improve your relationship and handling of money, and pay attention to financial red flags to consider when dating a potential life partner. First concept of is spender versus saver. The most obvious impact spouses have on the family nest egg stems from whether they are a spender or saver. There are some people who you need to spend very every dollar that they have. They may love expensive things or just simply love too many things. Every penny in the bank account will be spent if they don't if they don't if they see it. It's a sickness that can force your family into the poorhouse. On the other hand, there are people who ensure that they always have ample cash cushion, they clip coupons, live within their means, and actively look for discounts when they need to make a purchase. It only takes one spouse's irresponsible spending habits to derail a family's finances. Next is the concept of money expectations. Some people are delusional about their finances. Avoid these people or spend the time to educate them. 
I've, I've met with couples with the primary breadwinner earning a decent salary and a second spouse either unemployed, working part-time, or at a low-paying job. And that spouse still envisions a life of luxury, vacations, and living in a large home in a nicer part of town. I share this dose of reality with them. You don't get a pass on math. If you do not have a high household income, you can't live an extravagant lifestyle. You need to make compromises on where and how you live. I often play the bad guy when I tell couples that they are not entitled to a five-bedroom, five-bathroom house in expensive from community. You either both need to choose high-paying careers, put in extremely long hours, or make personal sacrifices to make this feasible. Spouses who don't come to terms with this reality will likely saddle their family with an insurmountable level of debt, and their financial struggles will only compound going forward. Spouses who recalibrate expectations can make the conscious decision to live within their means. This may mean buying a smaller house, choosing a less desirable part of town, not going on vacation, never eating out, and wearing old clothes. Making these decisions with eyes wide open to enjoying, leads to enjoying life that they can actually afford. Next is whether your partner is an investor or a hoarder of cash. Most people understand that they need to invest to meet future goals. It's very difficult to be financially successful if you aren't putting your capital to work in stocks, real estate, or other businesses that appreciate over time. Assets that aren't growing will appreciate the, will experience the corrosive effects of inflation. If your spouse insists on keeping a pile of cash sitting on the sidelines and is unable to take even a modest level of risk to grow your money, it will adversely impact your family's future lifestyle. Next is the money mindset. It's important to evaluate whether your significant uh, significant other's views on money are a tool or as a scorecard. Certain people have too much of their identity tied to their money and the things that money can buy. Sadly, this is not an uncommon characteristic, especially in some Jewish communities. This relationship with money will put your family on the hedonistic treadmill where buying goods will spark temporary joy in your life, followed by very quickly the losing of interest, becoming depressed, and needing to buy something else. This is an expensive and futile way to live. On the other hand, if your spouse views, views money as a tool that allows them to live a Torah lifestyle, enjoy themselves, help others, and do mitzvot, this will enhance one's life and financial well-being. Next is whether your spouse is supportive or critical of professional pursuits. It's rare for someone to leave high school, college, or even graduate school and immediately start earning a high salary. Starting a business, working your way up the corporate ladder, or developing a reputation in your field doesn't happen overnight. It's common for careers and income to be built up over time. As the saying goes, good things come to those who wait. It's imperative to have a spouse that can appreciate this reality and remain supportive during this process. Showing support doesn't always mean agreeing with the approach you're taking. It may require offering constructive feedback when necessary. However, the key is for the couple to understand that most successful careers require playing the long game. I have seen this play out multiple on multiple occasions over my career. An impatient spouse who didn't support the necessary time investment inhibited the other's ability to reach their full career potential. This led to a stagnant income and an unfulfilling professional life. I've also met with couples where both spouses are supportive of one another in their career pursuits. This has led to tremendous financial rewards, professional recognition, or both. Finding a partner who is willing to go on this journey with you and will remain supportive along the way 
can be a pivotal difference between earning a livable wage at a dead-end job versus creating career and lifestyle of which you are both proud. Next is having a dual income. Life is full of financial speed bumps. A recession or sudden job loss can happen. Surprise expenses constantly arise. A leaky roof, a legal dispute, unforeseen medical expenses, and so forth. These things happen to everyone over the course of their lives. If both spouses are working and contributing financially to the marriage, this can help ease the stress and financial burden and will help the household achieve their long-term financial goals. And finally, remember that divorce is costly. A failed marriage, because you don't end up with the appropriate person, is the quickest way to lose half your wealth. I used to think that day trading, gambling, or buying the latest cryptocurrency were the most effective methods of losing money. However, all these things pale in comparison to the cost of divorce, which incidentally is often precipitated by disagreement or strain over the family's finances. Not every marriage lasts and there is a system for handling divorce. However, it's important to do everything you can to ensure that you and your spouse are on the same page about money from the onset or can lead to a very unfortunate and and costly consequences. Personal finance is not a particularly romantic topic, nor is, nor is what most people think about when they're finding their beshared. But it should be the first thing you think about. Money is a tool that will allow you to live the life you want. If you're dating, take the time during the courting stage of your relationship to ensure that you're both on the same page about money. If you are married, it's worth investing time in discussions about your finances and the role it plays in your lives. Be honest and introspective on your views, behaviors, and history with money. It may may make an extremely positive difference in your relationship. Okay, with those talking points, um, those talking points out of the way for this week, as a reminder, you can can be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at parkbridgewealth.com forward slash newsletter. We're currently at 8,500 subscribers and growing, so feel free to sign up and invite friends as well. Now for this week's money quote, which is from the legendary comedian Chris Rock, who said, wealth is not about having a lot of money. It's about having a lot of options. I like this quote so much because it's something that I've come to realize over time. Like many people, I used to think that wealth was having a large bank account, but it's really more than that. It's about being able to spend your time the way you want to spend it. As Rock said, wealth is very much about options or flexibility. If you have enough money to decide who you want to work with, when you'd like to work, how you'd like to work, to take a vacation when you want, to go out to eat when you want, and to live the life that you want, then you are wealthy. And that's far more important than just having a large portfolio. Now let's jump into this week's financial questions. If you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. What should what would be the pros and cons of purchasing equal weighted amounts of the 11 stock market sectors and rebalancing your portfolio each year rather than just indexing the total market or the S&P 500? So this strategy is unnecessarily complex. Simplicity when it comes to investing is almost always the right decision. Owning an S&P 500 index fund is simple if that's the area you're looking to get exposure to. (coughs) The fund does the rebalancing for you when companies enter or exit the index. It doesn't require you to hold 11 separate ETFs and rebalance them periodically back to equal weights. It also doesn't require you to add more funds to your lineup when new sectors are created. 
Even if you think this equal weighted strategy would outperform, it likely is still not worth the hassle. Furthermore, you can buy a single ETF that can do this for you. It's an equal weighted S&P 500 ETF, which exists through many asset class, many asset management firms. Finally, the S&P 500, which is market weighted versus equal weighted index, has outperformed the most time frame. So an equal weighted approach is not compelling based on historical data. You did ask for cons and pros. So here's a pro. The ability to do tax false harvesting when you own each individual sector ETF. Again, still not worth it. Keep things simple and you'll be better off. I know this is something you answer often, but I'm still not getting it. I just earned 57% on a real estate deal. I invested 50K and made 20K in three years. If I can get one of the, these home run deals every so often, even if even with a few duds along the way, which is pretty much guaranteed, why on God's green earth should I ever invest in the market? <sighs> Did you hear that? That was an audible sigh. Sadly, there's a lot you're not getting. The first and most obvious is your return isn't 57%. I'm not sure where you got this number. Maybe you pulled it out of your tush or even more likely the person who's running this deal gave you that number and you believed him because he's a friend. Also, whenever determining investment returns, you must factor in the holding period, which is imperative to calculating your actual return. For example, if you if you double if you're if you double your money on investment over a 15-year time frame, it may sound exciting to say your return on your investment is 100% but it's also under 5% annually, which trails the broad U.S. market index, so it's actually a lousy return. In terms of your point about being better off despite all the duds and losses, that's probably not true. Remember, these losses also factor into your return. It lowers it big time. Getting that rare home run, as you called it, is far from guaranteed and will likely not make up for all the money you lost by investing in Shmuley's multifamily housing project that goes belly up in Texas that he's been promoting to friends for years. Finally, as with any investment, you need to evaluate the opportunity cost or the, lo- or the loss of potential gain from other alternatives when one alternative is chosen. So if you invested in the U.S. stock market instead of these real estate opportunities, you will likely have had a higher return with less effort while being more diversified, eliminating reinvestment risk, and all while being more transparent. Based on your question, it seems like you need to reevaluate your investment strategy. Okay, next question. I'm 38 years old and should be a millionaire in a few years. Once I become a millionaire, can I retire? Probably not. Being a millionaire in many communities around the country will not get you very far, especially if you're if you're young, since your nest egg needs to last for longer. Many, many of my clients at your age are millionaires when you factor in all those assets. If they're retired on them, if they retired on that money, they would be broke in a few years, given their high level expenses like mortgage, property tax, insurance, yeshiva tuition, food, life, etc., If you actually live by yourself in Vietnam or Indonesia, where the dollar will take you quite far and have a low spending rate, then this is enough money to retire on. Unfortunately, in the U.S., a million dollars ain't going to take you nearly as far as it used to. You can blame whoever you want about this, Biden, Trump, inflation, Iran, Putin, your mother-in-law, but that's the reality and you should get in tune with it. Okay, next question. The situation is this. I can buy the cheapest house in a super upscale neighborhood or the nicest house in a more modest neighborhood. The way I see it, there are pros and cons to both. What are your thoughts? You're right. There are pros and cons to both. 
Living in more upscale neighborhood will make you feel more inclined to try to keep up with the Joneses, which is one of the biggest risks to anyone's finances, especially in the from community. On the positive side, can you benefit you can can you benefit by associating with some members of the community who are more high net worth? Maybe. And I said some members because there will undoubtedly be people in the community who are financing their lifestyle and just look like they have that look and just looking the part, but they actually are struggling financially. That's not uncommon. Living in the nicest house in a cheaper community will allow you to get get more for your money, more space, nicer home, etc. Also free up cash to spend on other aspects of life, such as um, outside of housing, like traveling, hobbies, etc. The downside is this community may not have all the amenities as a more expensive community. Also, there are outside factors to consider, like the growth of your income. If you anticipate seeing your household income go up exponentially, then perhaps push yourself a bit financially and move to a more expensive community where you'll be where you will comfortably be able to afford the home in the neighborhood in only a few years' time. There are lots of factors at play here, and there's no clear answer. Just know that with every decision in personal finance and in life in general, there are trade-offs. Understand what they are and proceed prudently. Okay, the next question is, are annuities a good investment? First, annuities are not actually an investment. There are contracts they are contracts with insurance company to provide you with a stream of income or possibly a certain minimum rate of growth for a period of time in exchange for a hefty fee. Second, annuities come in many shapes and sizes. So whether they are a good decision for you, you depends on the annuity you are evaluating. Third, there are certain fact patterns that make more sense for families to purchase an annuity over others. Speaking from personal experience, I think for most people, most annuities are expensive, unnecessary, confusing, and folks should consider and probably pursue alternative solutions to meet their their goals. That being said, the one fact pattern where I have seen annuities makes make sense is this. A client is terrified of the market. They're retired and are already collecting Social Security. If they take 15 to 20%, not more, and put it in a SPIA or a single premium immediate annuity, it can provide a very high rate of guaranteed income that will allow them to meet their cash flow needs and help them sleep at night because this stream of income is not tied to the gyrations of the market. The remaining 80% plus of your liquid assets are diversified elsewhere, so they have liquidity. I'd also ensure there's a rider that pays out for at least 15 years in case the annuitant dies early, so certain insurance companies will need to pay the beneficiaries until the 15 years are over. The specific fact pattern has been the few times I have actually, this has been the specific fact pattern that I've actually seen one of the few times that I've actually used annuities in my practice, and that has really not been many. This scenario comes up extremely infrequently. If anyone encourages you to buy an annuity as their first suggestion, they're likely a charlatan looking to take you for a ride and make a juicy commission. Avoid these people at all costs. The next question is, there are many ways to invest in real estate. Can you quickly go through them and would you? and what would you recommend? This is a good question, but impossible for me to answer and not leave a ton of information out. There are literally entire books and courses that can be written on this subject alone. Let me just give you some information to chew on. There are many, many, many ways to invest in real estate. Some of the ways that require the most experience are the, are the biggest hassle, least diversified, least liquid, but offer you the most control, give you the best tax benefit, have the least amount of additional fees and the potential to give the investor the largest return 
are ground up construction, flipping houses, short term rentals, and long term rentals. All these areas require an entire course unto themselves. Now, for real estate investing that requires less experience, less hassle, offers the most diversification, most liquidity, but offers the least amount of control, worst tax benefit, most layers of fees, and lowest returns include turnkey properties, syndication, private funds and REITs, and publicly traded REITs. Again, each of these areas has many more nuances. Since some people ask, let me get this out of the way now, I only invest personally in publicly traded REITs and I own my own home, which I don't consider to be an investment. I don't know what I will do in the future, but given all the benefits of publicly traded REITs, I'm unlikely to pursue other forms of real estate investing. The benefits don't outweigh the challenges for me. It's as simple as that. The next question, I live in a low cost and a low cost and low tax state. We just sent we just went on vacation in an expensive high tax state and love the amenities and attributes. Is it unwise to give up such cheap and financially manageable cost of living to move to an expensive state? It is only unwise if you can't afford to live in a high cost, high tax state. If you can afford it and will be able to do so in the future, then move there. Life should not be driven exclusively by your tax bill. Enjoy life and live in a place that you can afford, but will also increase your quality of life. Why do you think so many people live in New York? It's not the high taxes we enjoy. It's the hellish, hellish traffic, smell of weed and exhaust, homeless problem, illegal migrant problem, crime, inspire, inspiring political leadership and parallel parking. I'm just joking. But in all seriousness, the cuckoosh is on another level in New York and worth it. Or at least that's what I tell myself on a regular basis. Next question. I just read that illegal migrants are getting more in benefits than folks on SNAP. It seems like the system is set up to reward those who don't play by the rules. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are to worry less about the system and worry more about how you could personally improve your plight. This may include working harder, working smarter, taking more time off for mental health, investing in your physical health and relationships, and of course, for voting, voting for politicians that you think will represent you and your personal interests. This will, this will always, they will always be people who take advantage of the system. There are others who may seem to be getting by easier than you. That will never change. The sooner you start focusing on yourself and what you can control, the better off you'll be. Let's say you don't have much money to contribute to retirement at this present time, and whatever money you would be contributing is not allowed by a scholarship committee. Is there a legal way to contribute to a retirement plan not in your name? For example, a parent does it for you, uh, which would make you the custodian at a later date. So the essence of your question is how do you save for your future without without a financial aid committee at a college or yeshiva finding out about those funds and forcing you to pay more tuition costs? I'll leave the ethical part of the, that question to someone else. The financial answer is you probably will not be able to save in a traditional retirement vehicle without such a committee finding out about it. One strategy may be to, to have some sort of irrevocable trust set up and have it funded by a third party. The nuances involved will require you to speak to a competent attorney in this area. The cost for such advice and implementation will be expensive, so it may not be worth it for you depending on your financial situation. You're in a challenging predicament, predicament, and I think a more practical solution, although it won't be easy, 
is to pursue a high, higher paying career, switch to a cheaper school, move to a locale where the cost of tuition and cost of living is less so you could save for retirement, or you could do all three. Okay, the final question this week, I have $150,000 in an investment account. Should I liquidate it to build a pool? So there are a few thoughts here. Do you have more money in other accounts to one, pay your bills and two, save for your future? Three, can you afford ongoing maintenance and upkeep costs associated with owning a pool? If yes to all those questions, then one, will, will you use the pool often enough to make it worth it? And two, are you okay with the added liability associated with having a pool? In short, owning a pool is a lifestyle decision with, certain, with a certain element of additional liability beyond what traditional homeowners may face. If you could afford it and it makes you happy, then make it happen. If you can't really afford it and you won't derive much joy from it, then don't do it. However, if everyone else in your community is building a pool and you want to appear equally as successful so you can keep up appearances, then of course it's okay to do. And yes, I am joking about that last part. It's been a long week and there are lots of bad jokes this episode, but it is what it is. Okay, that's it for financial questions this week. Again, feel free to email me with any questions you have, and I might answer them in a future episode. And you can reach me at Jonathan at ParkBridgeWealth.com. And if you could take a minute to subscribe to this podcast and rate the show on Apple or Spotify, we'll help other personal finance enthusiasts find the show as well, and I will be very grateful. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.